name is Pastor Dave. Thankful to be with you all this morning. Uh, it's it's a, just a blessing to be with you. So this week it happened. So there's now coffee, uh, coffee in my copy of the Psalms. This happens inevitably. Um, so that's just always a, a moment in the life of every Bible. But we're learning today how we can find peace when we're surrounded. How do you find peace when you're surrounded? The Psalms mentor God's people as they sing them together. Remember, these are songs. They're the share play, shared playlist of Israel. And they would come together and sing these songs, and Christians sing them down to today. And this psalm, this psalm of David, mentors us in how we can find peace in moments where everything in the world seems to be turned against us. So David, he was a king in, in ancient Israel. So 3,000 years ago, what a wonder that we have preserved for us the record of his life. But he was king between 1010 and about 970 B.C., and when you think about King David, he was king over the nation of Israel. These are 12 tribes that were allied together. They looked to the same Lord. They, they had the same constitution, the Torah. They had the same story of how they got there. And yet, they didn't always get along. And it wasn't easy to rule these people. I think the, maybe a good way to envision what's going on is if you've seen Braveheart. Uh, some of you may have. Well, Robert the Bruce, he has to lead his clan, the Bruces, in Scotland. And it's kind of like that, where you have leaders of, of, these, of these tribes. And at times, they don't get along. At times, they, they ally with one another against others. There can be feuds. There can be backbiting. There can be conspiring against one another for power. They're imperfect people. And yet the Lord blessed David with the ability to lead them. He blessed his leadership and his kingship. He especially blessed him as a military com commander. From his youth, he was able to defeat bears, and then a giant, and then the Philistine army, the Ammonites, and all who came against the Lord and his people. He was able to lead them to victory. And you might think about this battle-hardened hero that in his home life, well, what would a guy like that be like? You, you might imagine that he might be like an overbearing dad, super type A, making sure everybody's on schedule, that kind of thing. But actually what we find is the opposite. Not a, not a general who makes sure everything is tidy in the ship at home, but rather someone who lets important things go, who isn't in, involved where he should be, and who makes the wrong decisions even in the way he structures his home. In fact, he was a husband to multiple wives, which we know from the beginning of the scriptures in Genesis 2 is not God's wisdom and his paradigm for, for faithfulness. But there he is. He has multiple wives. He has children with many of them. So there's a lot of half-sisters and half-brothers. And, and that's going to create tension and trouble from the get-go. But where the real trouble comes in is, as a dad, he doesn't discipline his kids when they do things that are really wrong. <laughs> he doesn't tell them guys, you can't do that, particularly his eldest son, Amnon. So Amnon, he loved him. But Amnon, he, one day, he falls in love with his half-sister, which is a bit icky to us, right? But it gets worse. Her name's Tamar. He falls in love with her, and he decides to, to go in and make a move. And when he does so, she, she says, no, wait, please, don't do this. Just go about it the right way. You can imagine, you, can there be a right way for this? But at the very least in their culture, the right way would be to go talk to the father of the person and to arrange so that you could do this in an honorable way, so you could arrange a marriage. But Amnon does not want to wait. 
He wants what he wants when he wants it, and he rapes his half-sister. It's horrible. And even worse, he ditches her afterward. He decides he doesn't want anything to do with her anymore. He got what he wanted. Now, what does David do? He's already got the slide up for us. 2 Samuel 13, 21 says, David was angry, but he would not punish his son Amnon because he loved him. For he was his firstborn. He did nothing. He didn't defend his daughter. And so Tamar is just wrecked. But her brother, Absalom, welcomes her into his home. See, he doesn't have a creepy love. He actually has a, a solid, rightful, brotherly affection for his sister. And he welcomes her into his home. And he takes care of her and helps her recover. But in that time, as he sees his sister suffer, he grows in his hatred for his father and for his brother, Amnon. And eventually he kills Amnon and he hatches a plot to take the kingdom from his father. So what David did in doing nothing in abdicating his role as a father was he enabled the creation of an enemy, not only to his family, but he's the king. It was an enemy to the whole nation. And that's the story of Absalom. He's like a comic book villain. Villain. He's, you know, he's raised by a good guy. He becomes disillusioned. And then he turns to avenge what has been done to his loved one. And there was a moment when David realized he was surrounded. So that comes in 2 Samuel 15, 13. The messenger comes to David. He's, he's ruling from Jerusalem, right? But he doesn't realize that his kingdom is being taken out from under his feet. The messenger says, the hearts of the Israelites have gone after Absalom. And, and David says, in response to that, to all his officials who are with him at Jerusalem, get up, let us flee or there will be no escape for us from Absalom. Hurry, hurry, or we're, we're going to be overtaken. This will bring disaster down upon us. He'll attack the city with the edge of the sword. And so imagine he's, he's leading sort of a retreat from his stronghold, because it's no longer his stronghold. And they're running out of the city, him and his closest advisors, the soldiers who have stuck with him through and through, they're running. And as he runs, he encounters people that are just taunting him like Shimei, who we'll meet in a bit. He's going to be manipulated by, by people. This can happen when we're surrounded. People see an opportunity to take advantage of us and in a weak moment when we're vulnerable. And this happens to him. One of the servants of Mephibosheth, which is easy for you to say, he comes and takes advantage of David in this moment. Friends who are friends, counselors who gave him good counsel, betray him. Uh, one, of, one of his counselors, Ahithophel, who gave him good counsel, is now counseling Absalom in how to destroy David. And so he's dealing with all this, but, but worst of all, now as king, as the one who is called to protect his people, and this is God's kingdom, he has to make war on his son in order to protect God's promised kingdom that he gave him. So, so he's in a situation, maybe you've been here, where there is no good solution. Have you ever been there? Every option, every pathway looks bad. You do your cost-benefit analysis, and you try to look for one that's just like, this is a good choice, and there's none of those, right? Leave the kingdom to your son, abandon God's promises, and your calling on your life, or go and retake the throne, kill your son, in the process, do you trust your advisors or do you not trust them? Because we'll find some of them are faithful and some of them are not. 
You know, all of these questions and challenges face him. And so this became the inspiration for David writing Psalm 3, as you see in the inscription there, which is very ancient. It's in the Hebrew text. It's in the ancient Greek text as well. A Psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. That's the inspiration. The song takes us into a moment when we're fleeing. And that may not be your song today, but one of the glories of the Psalms is that they invite God's people to sing songs like this together, whether it's your song today or whether it's not. First of all, it's gonna mentor you for the day that it will be your song. And second of all, you get to raise up for the person next to you who's surrounded, who can barely speak, who can't bring themselves to sing. You can sing for them and bring up a prayer before the Lord for them. So it forms us as a people. And when we're surrounded, this psalm is countering something that's very natural to us. You see, when, when we're surrounded, what do we do? We, we go into fight or flight reflexes, right? We, we talked about in our discipleship model that we're seeking to have our instinctive reflexes to life, our, our instinctive responses, to have those mentored and shaped by the Holy Spirit so that we would actually respond more like Christ. But, but for most of us, in a situation where we're surrounded, we're going to be fight or flight. So it might be fight, right? How are you in this situation? You've, you've been in this in the workplace. You've been there in family. When, when people are mean, do you just naturally get meaner, right? They get loud, you get louder. And it's like a wild boar cornered and just get out of the way, right? You're going to get hurt. Or maybe, maybe you're more surgical about it. You're, you're trained and so you do a quick analysis, it's like a SWOT analysis, and you see what all uh, weaknesses your perceived enemies have, and then you just go through like a SWAT team leader and eliminate each threat and obstacle methodically. You are scary people, but you're out there. Some of you have that kind of training. Sometimes it's the right thing to fight, but sometimes, sometimes it's not. In any case, what is governing your choice of whether to fight or flee? David fled. He knew that his troops, his people wouldn't survive if they stayed, so he needed time to regroup, to plan, to figure out what to do next. It was a strategic withdrawal. Some of us, we, we take on a way of withdrawing, a way of fleeing, where anxiety takes over. And we're just crushed. We're not going to do anything. We're just fleeing. We give in to the despair. We give in to all the voices. We start to think, maybe we're crazy. Maybe it's all actually true, everything they're saying about me. And we just give up. Or we run away. Sometimes it's right to run away for a moment. But what do we do? And how do we follow the Lord in this moment when we're surrounded? Psalm 3 kicks in. And it lifts our eyes to the Lord. Six times in this psalm, you're going to hear the name Yahweh, the Lord, in your English Bibles, L-O-R-D in all capital letters, right? Yahweh. He's right there with us in the middle when we're surrounded. That's the, the first thing we see. And then the name Elohim, God, twice in this psalm. Our eyes are lifted when we're surrounded to see that God is right there. And that's how this psalm mentors us. In fact, to speak God into the situation. That's how we find peace when we're surrounded. We speak God into the situation in faith. And so we're, we're going we're gonna to see this together as we dig in, but let's pause and pray 
and, and then we'll keep going. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, I pray that you'd meet your people. Lord, as we lift this song, as we, as we pray it together, as we meditate on it, Lord, I pray you would speak by your word and spirit, Lord. Meet us where we need to be met. Um, encourage us, strengthen us where we're weak, where we're, Lord, we're, we're falling. We're fearful. Lord, challenge us where, where we've been giving in too easily. Call us home to you. Your word is a lamp to our feet. It's a light unto our path. Lord, it is, it is sweet to the taste. So just come and feed us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, the great uh, 19th century German commentator Franz Delitzsch titled this psalm, The Morning Hymn of One in Distress but Confident in God. And interestingly, the Psalms begin, remember, with the blessed path of the one who meditates on uh, the, the word of God, on the Torah, day and night. Goes on to a royal psalm. And then we have uh, two uh, brother and sister psalms, Psalm 3 and Psalm 4, a psalm for morning and a psalm for evening. So Psalm 3, 5, it says, uh, I, I lay down and slept. I woke for the Lord sustained me. And then Psalm 4, verse 8 says, in peace, I'll both lie down and sleep for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. So we already see in the Psalms how they're training us to pursue a blessed life, morning and evening, day and night, rooted, planted in God's word. And it's amazing, blessed even in the midst of real turmoil. That's what David's facing. This isn't some light situation, right? David isn't feeling happy slappy when he comes to this moment where his son is opposing him, where he's seen his son killed because of his own inactivity in part, and when he's seen his daughter raped by his other son. This, this isn't just a light moment in David's life, right? And yet there can be true blessedness, a deeper happiness the Lord makes available that the Psalms are offering. And it begins by speaking the Lord into the situation. Verse one, what does it begin with? Oh, Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. This is a psalm of lament. What lament means in, in a biblical context is that we bring our complaints to God and we ask him for help. It's that simple. We bring our complaints, our troubles to God, and we ask him for help. Now, the laments are not just training us to complain. They're training us to complain to God. Oh, Lord, how many are my foes? And so this psalm mentors us when we're surrounded to first go to God and tell him what's going on. Just tell him. As a young pastor, I remember my mentor telling me that one of the most fundamental services that we can offer to folks and, and then Christians to one another, we all do this together as a family, is we can speak God into the room. You can be sitting in a room full of joy or you know, a news of job loss. It can be an exciting pregnancy. It could be postpartum depression. It could be all the seasons of life and all of its sorrow and all of its pain, you know, in sickness and in health. But we come to that moment and we don't allow one another to have the blinders where we think that we're alone that we're in this alone, that it's up to me to strategize and get out of this, to make a way. Or on the flip side, to say, there's no hope. There's no way out. This is the end. We don't allow ourselves to have those blinders. We, 
We encourage one another. We speak God into the situation. We say, God is here. The Lord is good even right now. He is God over this situation right now. And so simply what we're doing here is we're teaching one another to pray in every season. Now, many of you are like, oh man, you know, that's just like the obvious boring pastor answer, you know? You know, pray about it, duh, right? But the question is, do we actually attend to the most obvious things? Or is it the most obvious things that we often neglect, right? Turning to God in a moment of distress for a Christian who's, who's been mentored, who's been discipled, who's, who's learned from Jesus and looked to him with his people. Yeah, that, that's obvious in theory, in the textbook, right? But in the field, you know, in the lab of life, is it obvious? Do we do it? Because it's there that we find peace. It's there that we find the Lord is right there with us. And so, so David, he says, I cried aloud to the Lord and he answered me from his holy hill. He cries to the Lord in verse seven, arise, O Lord, save me, O my God. And, and what is God like when he cries out to him? Many of us think of, of the Lord being on his holy hill as, as somewhere far away, but we see in Matthew 14, uh, almost the same prayer being uttered by Peter as he's going under the waves. You remember this last month we were there. In Matthew 14, 30, and Peter's sinking underneath the waves. He's walking out to the Lord on the water. It's an amazing moment. But he starts to sink. And he says, save me, oh my God. Save me, Lord. And Jesus, what does it say? Immediately, he reached out and took hold of him. Immediately. He was right there. And he cared for him and took hold of him right there. The Lord wasn't far. He was right there. And David knew this too. That's why he cried out to him. That's why the psalm mentors this in this way. But many of us hear when we hear about encouragements to pray, when we hear that the Lord answers our prayers, some of us start to think, you know, that just sounds too simplistic. It sounds sort of like the power of positive thinking. Just, just think happy thoughts, you know, and, and you can fly with Peter Pan, you know, and the dreams that you wish will come true. It sounds so nice. It's like the power of positive thinking by Norman Vincent Peale. It's a book that many folks receive when they graduate from high school. And uh, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Maybe you've given away that book for a graduate. There are better books. So if you want a list of book recommendations, be happy to give you one, not that one. But this book, to summarize it, it tells you it's helpful to be positive. Okay, good, you don't have to buy the book now. It's helpful to be positive. You know, in, in, in situations where we're anxious, we're upset, being positive can be helpful, right? It can give you the clear-headedness to make a good decision. It can, it can help you inhabit those moments. But the question is, what is the ground of being positive? What's the ground of your optimism? You know, think about David. He's surrounded by real enemies, right? Think about Ukrainian soldiers in the Donbass region who are holed up and surrounded by real Russian soldiers. Being positive won't make the Russian soldiers go home. Why be positive? Why be positive when you're in the hospital bed and you're surrounded by cables and beeps and nurses and doctors coming in and out and, and the words of heart failure and we've tried everything and 
you've got a couple weeks. Well, what is the hope? What's the ground of being positive? Well, it's not just be positive. <laughs> this is where, where David knew something stronger than just some empty positivity of our culture. He knew the Lord who was with him, who could immediately reach out and take hold of him and many times had. He says this in verse three, but you, O Lord, are a shield about me. Present tense, right now, you're a shield about me. The, the preposition about is a strong, vivid preposition. It's like a child that's completely wrapped up in a blanket. It's, it's like when you jump into a pool off the diving board and suddenly your body's completely surrounded by water. That's how close, that's how completely the Lord surrounds his people. There is no chink in our armor when we put on the armor of God. He is right there, all around. And nothing will happen to us apart from his will. We are safe. Jesus himself, he knew what it was like to walk through life and to deal with suffering, even to deal with unanswered prayer. He knew that, that life in God's world wasn't just about the power of positive thinking. You know, he asked for the Lord to take the cup from him and the Lord didn't. He had a mission. He had the suffering allotted to him. But he follows his mission. He goes to the cross. But even there, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There's no thunderous reply from the heavens. The Roman centurions aren't struck down, you know. It was silence. And he died. But then he rose again. The Lord with him, even in him, as the second person of the Trinity what the Lord shows us in this psalm is that even in the darkest of moments when enemies surround, even as Jesus was surrounded on the cross, the Lord is surrounding us even more truly. He is our shield, even our glory. And, and we don't find peace when we're surrounded just by, by thinking happy thoughts, by being positive. We find peace by knowing that God is with us and speaking him into the situation. That's what this psalm does. Secondly, when we speak to the Lord in this way, you've experienced this, many of you, as you pray, you realize the one you're speaking to, right? You start to realize that, and all of us, naturally, and it's okay to do this, that you don't have to feel guilty about it. When you pray, many of us just rush right into the needs, the things that are just pressing in on us. We, we are surrounded. We have all these bad choices in front of us, and we don't know which one is the least bad one. We, we have all this stuff in our day that's coming our way. We have sickness in our family, all the things we pray for. And as we pray, we go straight to the needs. But we remember how Jesus taught us to pray. He taught us first to see the one to whom we're praying. Our, you're awake, our Father. And the Psalm 3 is the same way. Oh, Lord, how many are my foes? And as he sees the Lord, we realize that he is strong to keep us and to give us peace. First of all, he, his voice carries over all the noise and all the nonsense, over all the loud mouths. You see, there's, a, there's this loud mouth, Shimei, the son of Gera, 
And as, he, as David is running out of town, Shimei, who was in league with Saul, the previous king, and he had beef with King David because of that, he comes out to David, and here's, here's what he does. He curses continually. He curses continually at him. He throws stones at David and all the servants of David, all the people and all the mighty men who are on his right hand and his left. So this guy has some serious chutzpah, you know, uh, facing all of those soldiers and throwing stones at them. Nevertheless, he goes on and he says as he cursed, get out, get out, you man of blood, you worthless man. See, your evil is on you for you are a man of blood. By this time in the story, if you're reading this, you know that Shimei is not incorrect about the fact that David was a murderer. There was blood on his hands. He had a man put to death so that he could take his wife. He was also an, an adulterer. He was also a soldier who's seen situations that, that no one in this world should see, and yet soldiers see these situations on our behalf so that there can be peace for us. And he has, he has killed people. And he's experienced those bloody traumatic moments. And hearing those words, worthless, you wonder if those were words that would get into his head even on his own, and then just hearing it shouted, how that can pierce to the heart. So he's hearing these things, and no doubt they troubled him. But what does he say? You, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory, and the lifter of my head. He's the king. All of his stuff is, is public. It's on display. People know what King David did. How could he even look up as he walked around and look people in the eye? It was possible only because the Lord lifted his head. He says, I delight in you. He says, you're my son. And we see this even in, in King David's greater son, King, uh, King Jesus, who was baptized. And when he comes out of the water and the Holy Spirit descends on him, what does the Lord say over King Jesus? He says, today you're my son. And you I'm well pleased And these are the words available to us as we make this song our own. There's a, there's a moment in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe when Edmund, one of the brothers, the Pevensey brothers, he's the younger one. Peter's the older brother. He's facing Aslan. But he's facing him knowing what he's done. You see, when Lucy discovered Narnia in the wardrobe, she comes out and Edmund just gives her the hardest of time. He makes fun of her for it. And then he stumbles into Narnia himself through the wardrobe, and he meets a wicked queen there who gets him to betray his brothers, his brother and his sisters just by giving him dessert. He'd rather have dessert than be faithful to his family. And then he's even promised that he can get even with his older brother, Peter, and he can be the king, and he can call the shots. And so he, he just totally betrays his family. And then when he comes in to Narnia and faces Aslan, Aslan, surprisingly, doesn't just, just pounce him. He doesn't just kick him out or kill him. He has firm words only for Edmund that we never get to read. But suddenly Edmund starts to change. And right about at that moment, the witch comes and she starts speaking. And here's what she says. You have a traitor there, Aslan. Of course, everyone present knew that she meant Edmund, but Edmund had got past thinking about himself after all he'd been through and after the talk he'd had that morning. 
He just went on looking at Aslan. It didn't seem to matter what the witch said. And that, that's what this psalm is doing. The thing is, some of those voices are right, right? Failure, sinner, right? Cheat, liar, adulterer, murder, worthless person, apart from God giving us worth and dignity. And that's what we find in the gospel is that his word carries. The, the, the devil has his, his, his tools, his playbook. That The word Satan actually means accuser. This is his business. But the Lord speaks the final word over us. He is our glory. He lifts up our heads. He says, you are mine. I delight in you. I'm proud of you. You're my child. Don't listen to all of their nonsense. When you're stuck in that feedback loop, Whatever it is for you, whatever people have said about you, no matter if it's even partially true or even mostly true, <laughs> our identity isn't found in the things we've done, good and bad. It's found in what the Lord says of us. We're beloved. And so we speak the Lord in this situation. We, we speak what he says about us. We ignore all the other voices. Secondly, when we speak the Lord into the situation and we, and we see who he is, we also see his ability, his strength, his power, and what he has done. And so here's another obvious thing in the Christian life that I commend to you. So I'm encouraging you as a pastor, surprise, to pray, but also then to keep record of when the Lord answers those prayers. Have you kept record of the ways in which he keeps faithfulness with you, even in small things? So... Uh, think about times at night you're going to bed, it's like one o'clock and you can't fall asleep and you pray, Father, please help me sleep. And the next thing you know, it's morning and you just slept and you got five hours and it was exactly what you needed. You have enough to go through the day. What a gift. And even more so for David, for soldiers and folks who, if they go to sleep, they don't know if they're going to wake up because they could be sabotaged and killed in the night, right? So going to sleep is an act of faith. They go to sleep and they wake up. <laughs> Why? Verse 5, because the Lord sustained them. They see waking as a gift. This is what the psalm does. It, it encourages us to see the Lord's faithfulness in these small things and to, re to record them, write them down, share them with people. The Lord blessed me today. I got to get up. And this gives us a little bit of confidence for the big things. You see, verse 6, I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who've set themselves against me all around. There's a big threat against him. And the Lord who had met him in those small things, he knows that he will bring him through. Not only because of those small things, but because of the big ways the Lord has delivered his people in the past. So note verse seven, the second half there. It says that he smites all my enemies on the jaw. He breaks the teeth of the ungodly. That's the ESV. Actually, in the original Hebrew, the, the verbs there 
uh, to smite or to strike, and to break there or to shatter. Those are in simple past tense. They're called the perfect tense. And so the King James, I think, catches it better. Thou hast smitten all mine enemies upon the cheekbone. Thou hast broken the teeth of the ungodly. Why does this matter? That matters because the Lord has done this before. He has conquered his enemies before, and he darn well can do it again. The picture is, is kind of like Bugs Bunny uh, and Elmer Fudd. If you haven't ever watched Bugs Bunny and Elmer Fudd, you may be uh, a member of the, the Gen Z generation, and that is wonderful, and I'm so thankful that you're here, uh, but you, you need to go YouTube Bugs Bunny and Elmer Fudd later, okay? So, um, but you, you remember Elmer Fudd, he, he's got his, his double barrel shotgun, right? And he's chasing down Bugs Bunny and he says, which way did he go? Which way did he go? Right? And he's looking around and then when he sees Bugs, he thinks he's going to get him and it looks like he's going to get him. But then Bugs just pops up next to him with like a boxing glove full of bricks and boom. And then all of his teeth just shatter like piano keys, you know, and fall out. Right? You can see the picture. This is the picture that all of God's enemies alight against us. They are as ridiculous as a gummy-mouthed Elmer Fudd, right? No chance. Think of every tyrant who has ever lived in history. I don't care who they are. Their plots have not endured. And every human being, every single one, even the most wicked and powerful that convince themselves they're invincible, they die and they face God. Furthermore, not only are all the enemies in this world, are they detoosed, but the Lord has pulled the teeth of all of our worst enemies, Satan, sin, and death. Colossians 2 speaks of this. It speaks in Colossians 2.13 that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, but God made us alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. And how do you do this? Verse 14, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Verse 15, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. It's like Elmer Fudd holding his double barrel shotgun and all of a sudden Bugs pulls one on him and he's holding one of those flower squirt guns, you know? He's got nothing. He looks silly trying to oppose God and his people. He has no teeth, no ability to harm us. And Jesus has done this to our spiritual enemies, right? What, what, what does Satan have? He has words of accusation. But Jesus, he has taken all of those accusations and all of the rightful punishments that are deserved by those and in the ultimate jujitsu move, he takes in all of that into himself and he falls. He goes down, even to death for us. But then he rises in power by the Holy Spirit and all of his enemies are reeling and their teeth shattered. They have nothing left. And we stand before him free and forgiven. And you can receive that forgiveness today whether you've received it in the past, I hope you'd look to him again and just realize Jesus paid it for you. You can come to him with peace. And if you've never received that, I hope you would today. Look to him, say, Lord Jesus, Lord, thank you. Thank you for dying for me. Thank you for taking the penalty for my sin.
So Jesus has conquered for us. He has done this. And this gives us confidence. We speak what the Lord has done into our situation. When we're surrounded by enemies and they look fierce, we remember the Lord has been faithful to me in the smallest of moments. He's been faithful in his world in the greatest of moments. He's ultimately been faithful in Christ. He's disarmed all of my enemies. They have no teeth. But at at the end of this psalm, the psalm ends with something that I think is really difficult to apply. Personally, I think it's difficult. I'll let you decide what you think. I think it would have been tough for David. He says, salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. It's interesting. Up to this point in the psalm, uh, the the suffix that, the way it works in Hebrew, um, things like a possessive suffix goes at the end. So the word my uh, is like a suffix. In any case, that occurs six times in this psalm. There's a lot of focus on my needs, my enemies. How many are they, Lord? There's this inward focus that, that just happens when we're in trouble. But what happens at the end of this psalm is the vantage turns to the Lord, to you, and to what is yours. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. Even in the midst of this moment when I'm surrounded, the Lord, the Lord has purpose. And these people that are turning against me in David's case, including the people that went after Absalom and betrayed him, They're the people of God. These people that have wronged me. They're your people, Lord. And and what do you long for your people? You long for blessing for your people. So I'm gonna gonna bless all these people who've turned against me. I, I wonder if I would do the same. Well, Franz Delich, he says of these last words of the Psalm, instead of cursing his faithless people, He implores a blessing upon those who've been piteously led astray and deceived. This upon thy people, thy blessing has its counterpart in the father forgive them of the other David whom his people crucified. So just as Jesus from the cross says, father forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. David is is saying blessing. He's speaking the Lord's words over the Lord's people. I I can remember a moment. uh, it It was springtime. And uh, it was a Saturday night. It was probably 10.45, say, and I'm falling asleep. Saturday night means next morning is Sunday. I've I've prepared. I'm getting ready. I'm going to be up the next morning early for for leading worship. There was a person, not in our church, but in the extended community uh, of Christians in our town, related to people in our church, who, who was upset with me for a ministry decision and disagreed about the direction we were going. So upset, in fact, this person decides to send an email to all of our elders and members of our congregation as well, beyond that, with a whole bunch of crazy accusations. And that was about 10.45 p.m. on a Saturday night. And I didn't have my phone on Do Not Disturb. So my phone, I look at it. Oh, no. Have you ever been there? Have you looked at your phone? Oh, no. And in that moment, I'm, I'm just in the moment. I'm, I'm in bed. I'm, I'm asleep. You know, Christina's next to me asleep. What do I do? Well, there, there, there's reflexes. So I, I can contact everyone. I can say, here's what the book of order says. Here's how we can investigate this. And you'll see this person is kind of crazy. We can, we can assign a team to pastor the person and help them and try to bless them. We, here's, how we can, here, here's how we can get through this well. And I could just try to 
turn into command center right there at that moment and solve all the problems. I, I could take a vacation, a long vacation, and say, see you later, guys. And honestly, in hindsight, that sounds kind of nice. Um, but that's not what the Lord impressed upon me. In the moment, in bed, wishing I could sleep, but I couldn't, he just says, pray for him. Pray. And I had a mentor in that season of my life who, who taught me to pray very simply for, for, for folks who I will uh, lovingly call stinkers, to, to pray every ordinary blessing on them, to pray that they might find joy in being outdoors today. It was springtime. Lord, let him feel sunshine on his back. Lord, let him enjoy the refreshment of a really good meal. Lord, let him have a good conversation with his family today. Lord, uh, please bless him in his work. Give him integrity and skill in the things he does. And bless other people through him. And Lord, lift his eyes so that he might see every blessing comes from you. That he might turn to you. Just pray blessing upon blessing upon blessing upon this person. And that's a, a moment where I, I was resisting praying curses and that's what we'll talk about next week in Psalm 5 as we turn to that topic. There is a moment for that. But the ordinary mode of Christ followers is to pray blessing even on our enemies. That's what Jesus said, love your enemies and pray for them. And David shows us this remarkably here in Psalm 3. Jesus did that for us. It was our sin that put him there. And he says, Father, forgive them they don't know what they're doing. And he's spoken a blessing over us. And it's looking to him and looking to his ways where we can find peace even when we're surrounded. And I hope that you would find that too, that you could be mentored to look to the Lord, to speak him into the situation, to see that he's right there with you, to see how he speaks about you, the tenderness with which he loves you, and the incredible strength with which he will defend you and already has. So let's pray. Father, thank you, Lord, that when we're surrounded, that we have you. You're our shield, our glory, the lifter of our head. You're right with us, and we praise you. Lord, we, we're not entitled to any of this. We're not entitled to, to life itself, to wake up in the morning, and yet you've given these good gifts to us. We thank you. I pray you'd turn our hearts and the hearts of our neighbors to see that you give every good, good gift. And we pray especially that you might just lift up Jesus Christ, even in our lives and on our tongues, as we live among our neighbors, that they would see there's a refuge, there's a place of safety in the midst of a world with everything wrong going on around us, that he would offer us safety and shelter, he'd be our shield. And Lord, help us to, to live and proclaim that hope. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen.